Life is hard. That's all I've got. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) I I, I got more time. Thank you. Aren't you glad, though, that that's not the end of the story? I mean, it could be, but it's not the end of the story. But it is part of the story. There are people in our church family right now that are suffering all kinds of hardships. Some of you have recently lost a loved one. Some of you are battling a terminal illness. Some of you have had severe financial setbacks and you're kind of wondering now, what's, what does the future hold? And there's a lot more suffering, there's a lot more trials going on just in our church family. The reality is you can't get away from them no matter who you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how much money you have, trials will be a part of your life. And when you're done with one, there's more in your future. It has been that way since Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord. Suffering is a part of life. Hardship is a part of life. And so what do we do? What do we do? Even James' original readers, Jewish Christians that were scattered abroad in part because of persecution, they experienced trials and hardships as well. And James wanted to encourage them. You know, a few years ago, there were two women in our church that felt prompted by the Lord to do something about the scourge of human trafficking. It's an overwhelming problem. And what they heard the Lord say is, you have to do something. You can't do nothing. And out of that, Naomi's House was born, a ministry of Moody Church that helps women who have been trafficked. And through the care and the love that's provided, they're able to begin healing physically and emotionally and most important, spiritually. I'd like to read you a recent update that came out that focused on our newest graduate from the program. Trauma held this woman captive for so long, she would find herself paralyzed by fear and doubt. She couldn't imagine a life without abuse and substances. That was her normal. And now she's been sober for over a year and a half. She walks by faith and has a new trust in Jesus and his promises to her. And as she gave her graduation speech, She noted how she felt stronger spiritually, physically, emotionally, more than ever before. She said, my mom's not driving the streets looking for me. She looked at the other residents in the room, women who are in the middle of their program, and she said this, don't leave before the miracle happens. Don't leave before the miracle happens. In other words, Don't give up until God rescues you. Isn't that a wonderful word of encouragement? And I think that's a great application for our passage this morning. Don't give up until God rescues you. How do we overcome the trials that are inevitably a part of our lives? How do we make sure that we're going to be able to overcome them and not just be victims to them? Well, the good news is sometimes we feel like we need a miracle. That's what it's going to take. But God is in the miracle business, right? And he's not out of miracles. He's got plenty left. He's probably got one or more with your name on it. And so this morning, we're going to see three keys to overcoming trials. Three keys to overcoming trials. If you would, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. If you'd like, you can use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. You'll find our our text on page 1011. 
And we'll read the entirety of our passage here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the first key is this. We have to keep our eyes on the prize. Keep our eyes on the prize. Now, I don't like using cliches, but this one rhymes, so I think it's okay. But keep your eyes on the prize, I think, actually is essentially what James is telling us to do from this verse. In fact, it's what Jesus did, according to Hebrews 12, 2. It says this, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew the horror of the cross that awaited him. But for the joy set before him, that was the prize. That's what he was looking to. He could endure the cross and despise its shame. So, let's start from the beginning. What is a trial? A trial is a pain in the neck, right? One one author put it this way. A trial refers to any difficulty in life that may threaten our faithfulness to Christ. Physical illness, financial reversal, the death of a loved one. Now, trials are not the same thing as temptations, although they go hand in hand like a couple walking along the beach. A very nasty couple, you might say. For example, the trial of a life-threatening illness might tempt you to curse God and to get so angry and sinfully angry at him. Or the trial of a financial setback might tempt you to do something unethical to get money. And while experiencing a trial, and we all have them, we often get discouraged, don't we? We kind of grow weary and tired, especially if it's gone on for too long. And we're just kind of done with it. And yet it continues. And sometimes with no end in sight. And what James wanted for his original readers and what he wants for us is to go into those trials with hope and confidence. He wants us to understand that you can overcome every trial that comes your way. You can choose to obey the Lord and to experience his blessing and his goodness through trials and not to experience the suffering and the pain and the heartache that comes from disobeying the Lord. So what James is calling his readers to do is to remain steadfast under trial or to stand the test, not to get knocked down, but to remain standing. And simply put, it means resisting the temptation to sin. Resisting the temptation to disobey the Lord in the midst of the trial, even though that temptation may be very strong and it may go on for a long time. To remain steadfast, right, that requires effort. It requires a lot of work. It can require a lot of patience as well. Our natural tendency is to find a way of, of escape. We want out as fast as possible. If there's any way to avoid it, we do. And James is warning us, though. He's saying, If your escape from trial involves sitting against the Lord, don't do it. Do not do it. It isn't worth it. Perseverance is the ability to withstand and overcome all obstacles in order to achieve your goal. 
One definition that I really liked, it says that to persevere means to refuse to stop. You refuse to stop. You know, there's many worthwhile things in life that the only way that you're going to gain them is if you refuse to stop. For example, learning to play a new instrument. I did not refuse to stop. I stopped. I was watching on YouTube a guy who, who had just started playing the guitar. And you heard him and thought, well, okay, maybe the guitar isn't for you. But he continued to practice for thousands of hours, and he recorded that on YouTube. And at the end, the last one I saw, after multiple thousands of hours of practicing, I could not believe the sounds he was getting out of a guitar. It was incredible. He refused to stop practicing. If you want to learn a new language, you have to refuse to stop learning. If you want to pass a major exam like the bar exam, you have to refuse to stop studying. So how can we remain steadfast in the midst of trials? To persevere in difficult things, to keep going when it's far easier just to stop and to give in, we have to have a goal that will motivate us. We have to have a goal that is more valuable to us than the comfort from abandoning the trial. Otherwise, why would you endure a trial if it has no benefit to you at all? You would not stick your hand in a fire for no reason but you would run into a burning building to save your child. And you wouldn't put up with months or even years of painful physical rehab if doing so didn't mean that you could walk at the end. You need a goal, a goal that is stronger than any reason to give that up. And if you don't have it, if you don't have a goal, if you don't have a, a prize that your eyes on, you're probably going to give in to temptation. You're going to fall to that trial because some trials are simply too difficult. And it's why it's so important for us to keep reminding ourselves of, of what it is that we're persevering for. Some of you have a picture on your refrigerator of what you hope to look like one day. Some of you may have a, a picture of a house that you hope to live in and you're saving for. Or maybe it's a degree that you're working on. Looking at that picture all the time reminds you this is why I'm persevering. This is why I am enduring suffering rather than avoiding it. And so what does James tell us is the prize that we should be keeping our eyes fixed on that is greater and should be greater in our lives than the temptation to give in? It is the crown of life. Now what is a crown of life? I like the idea of crowns. Kings and queens wear them. And in James' day, uh, victors of athletic contests would get a laurel wreath as a crown. But James isn't writing about either one of those literal crowns. He's writing about the crown of life, the crown of eternal life. Let's take a look at what John 17, 3 says about eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The idea then of the crown of life, what being promised to us, is a relationship with God that's deeper and more intimate than we know. I love what one commentator said. He said, this is the kind of reward that only people who love Jesus would even be interested in. It's not something that if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, you'd, you'd hear that and say, the crown of life, no, no big deal. I'd rather have a real crown. This crown isn't separate from our relationship with the Lord. It is a reward of intimacy with God and all of the blessings that that entails. And that should be for God's people because it's built into us by the Holy Spirit, the greatest desire that we can have. It, in fact, is 
the greatest reward that you and I can receive, whether we know it or not. It is the most satisfying reward possible. James' emphasis here is on receiving that reward in the life to come. In fact, in Revelation 2, Jesus promises the crown of life. If you, if you stand firm until the point of death, and that's a great encouragement to us, perhaps as we near the end of our lives, or if we're even faced with the possibility of having to give up our lives to remain faithful to the Lord. But because it's part of our relationship with the Lord, I think one of the most exciting things is that we experience that blessing even now, right? Because James said, blessed is the man or is the woman. It's a current blessing. The freedom and the joy that God's people can only have from a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord, from walking with him in joyful obedience, not the guilt, not the shame that too often accompany our experience because we're sinners, but overcoming trials, being strengthened against temptation, that freedom, that joy of walking with the Lord, there's nothing greater than that. I'll tell you, I, I've, I've known the Lord for over 40 years. I wish that I would have grasped this truth. To be honest with you, I wish I really would have believed it decades ago. If you'd have asked me if I'd have believed it, I would have said, absolutely. But I wasn't experiencing it because I was too often giving in to temptation. Too often I found that there was a way of escape in a trial that was not God's way, but it was my way, and I took it. I would... This is my desire for my children, for my family, for you, for our church, that we really grasp the joy of walking with the Lord in intimacy, the freedom and the joy that he wants all of us to have. I mean, we would be walking advertisements for Jesus in a way that right now we probably aren't, right? You probably couldn't wipe the smile off our face. Even in the midst of trials, because we would embrace all the promises of God. We would understand the intimacy that God wants to have with us. It is the exact opposite of what the world tells us. And too often, it's the opposite of what we are tempted to believe. Have you ever heard anybody say, I feel so alive? Maybe they're overlooking the Grand Canyon, or perhaps they were, they were just cured of some uh, supposedly terminal disease. And the joy of being alive and the pleasure at, at experiencing life makes them say, I've never felt so alive. It feels so good. That is just a glimpse of what God has for his people. In the life to come, absolutely. But we should be experiencing far more than a taste of that right now. And that's what he's offering us. So be honest with yourself. Is there a trial that you're going through right now? Is there a temptation that you're facing that you are ready to give in? You're ready to say, you know what? I don't know where Jesus' rescue is. I've waited too long. I can't keep doing it. I have to give in. That's the only way that I can feel any kind of comfort and peace and happiness. And you're wrong. You're wrong. Don't do it. Don't give in. The blessing of walking with God in joyful obedience to the strength that the Holy Spirit provides God's people is worth it. The man or the woman who receives the crown of life is described as three ways in this passage. They're blessed. They remain steadfast under trial. And they are loved by God, and they love the Lord. And I think this, this last one, they love the Lord, it really is the bottom line, isn't it? Because that's what the text says, that God has promised the crown of life to those who love him. Of all the commandments that God has given to us, Jesus said that's the most important. 
There is none more important than responding to God's love for us by loving him in return. Not giving money to the church, not being nice, not attending church. All of that will follow joyfully if we first love the Lord in response to his. That is the crown of life. And so what's the implication? The implication, I think, is that if we do love the Lord, then we will obey him. We will remain steadfast under trial. Not perfectly, but ultimately that is the mark of a true follower of Jesus. That great desire to overcome, that great desire to walk in obedience, to endure until the end. We will sin, but we will repent and continue to follow the Lord. So there's two important things to keep in mind here, I think. One is this, that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been in Jesus' words born again, then nothing can separate you from the love of God. That you have God's unconditional approval and God's unconditional love because of what Jesus did for you on the cross and the fact that you received that. This passage is not teaching a salvation by works. Nevertheless, James' emphasis in his letter is that faith works. It does something. You can't just say it. You can't just feel it. It acts. It can't help itself. You will know a tree by its fruit. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that there are not hardships in this life. You know, some people seem to think of the Christian life, it's like a, it's like a plane trip. Yes, it's very difficult to get to the airport and to get to your gate on time. But once you're there, then once you're in your seat, you can just relax. You can just put your seat back. Well, I, mean, I wouldn't recommend putting your seat back unless you ask the person behind you. We could watch more news if you didn't get that. But you've got like four or three inches in front of you. Relax. Enjoy. Let the pilot, let the flight attendants do the job. But that's obviously not how the Apostle Paul thought of the Christian life, right? He told Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. That's what we're supposed to do. It is a battle, and God expects us to rely upon him for the strength that we need to get through it. If you have no desire to overcome temptation, no desire to glorify God in your trials, that's not evidence of someone whose life has been changed by the gospel. That's evidence of someone who doesn't know the Lord at all. So does the thought of receiving the crown of life, ultimately, but in this life as well, as a Christian, does that thought, eternal life in all of its pleasure and beauty and richness, motivate you to endure these light and momentary afflictions that the Bible calls what we go through? Does it help you to see your trials as opportunities to fine-tune your senses for the things that are eternally important and that please God? To demonstrate and strengthen your love for God? I hope, I hope they do because that's what they're designed for. The second key to overcoming trials is never blame God. Never blame God. Let's take a look at uh, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That's a very important principle. James is warning his readers who are about to give in. They're about to sin. They're about to allow the trial to run them over. And he's warning them not to give up their resistance to temptation. During trials, especially ones that we may have prayed a long time for the Lord to remove from us. When those are continuing, it is tempting for us to blame God and then to sin. And we must not do that. The sovereignty of God 
It is a wonderful truth that is designed to comfort and to encourage God's people. When you reflect on the fact that your loving Heavenly Father is in control of all things, so that whatever comes into my life must have his approval, and therefore it must be for my eternal good, that should give you all the comfort and the peace and the strength that you and I need to overcome trials. But the problem is sometimes we turn God's sovereignty against him, don't we? We say, well, you're in control of all things. You could have stopped this. If this didn't happen, I wouldn't have sinned. And that's really where we go. God, if you hadn't brought this trial into my life, if you had given me what I asked for, when I asked for it, then I wouldn't have had to sin. I had no choice. It's not my fault, God. It's your fault. And that's a sick temptation that we face, but it is one that we face. And so here's my pastoral counsel. Never do that. It will not work. It will not fly with God. It will not help you. I mean, have you ever tried that when you were in high school? At the end of the semester, you go up to your teacher and you say, you know, I wouldn't have failed that final exam if you hadn't insisted that I take it. You know, this is really more on you than it is on me. I, I expected more from you. There's teachers in here, I'm sure. If it's ever worked, let me know. I don't think that it has. I tried a lot of things in my school career. So James is concerned that his readers not believe this lie. And it is a dangerous lie. Because once you and I get to the point where we're willing to justify our sin in the midst of rebelling against God, once we're at a point where we don't feel responsible for our sin, it's somebody else's fault. It's my wife's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's God's fault. Once you get to that point where you no longer feel responsible for your sin, what strength do you have? What incentive do you have to overcome the trials and the temptations in your life? You have very little, don't you? It's very difficult at that point. Proverbs 19.3 says this, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. That's what he does. It's his own folly that brings him to ruin, but his heart rages against the Lord. So James here gives two reasons not to blame God. Number one, God cannot be tempted with evil. This is such a wonderful thing to grasp about our Heavenly Father. There is no internal impulse in God to sin. He is not vulnerable for any desire to sin whatsoever. The perfect and holy character of God is completely free of any sin, any inclination to sin, any desire to sin. Which means he is always on the side of righteousness in our spiritual battles. 1 John 1.5 says this, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What that means is that God hates all sin. He hates all violence and lies and greed. He hates pornography. He hates gossip. He hates slander and slothfulness and bitterness and every sin you and I can commit. He hates it all. And so it is inconceivable for him to be tempted by it. It is completely contrary to his holiness, and so he is not enticed by it in the least. So, that leads us to the second reason we do not blame God, according to James. God himself tempts no one. Because there is no internal impulse to sin. God is not enticed by it at all. God hates it. It is unthinkable that he would want anyone else to sin, that he would lead anyone else to sin. So now, what do we do with those passages in the, passages in the Bible that seem to indicate that God tests his people. Doesn't that mean that he kind of also tempts them to sin? 
No. God tested Abraham when he told him to sacrifice Isaac. He tested Job with an assortment of trials. He tested the people of God in numerous ways as well. God is testing his people to reveal what's in them, to teach them and to strengthen them. He's not trying to make them sin in any way. In fact, Deuteronomy 8.2 is, is a great passage in this regard. Deuteronomy 8.2. Thank you. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. That's what he wants to know. Are we going to keep his commandments? He's teaching us and he's strengthening us through these trials. Just like you, you can't get physically stronger without exercising. Something that we would all acknowledge is painful and evil in and of itself. <laughs> so how can you be strengthened spiritually unless God forces you to flex those muscles, to walk by faith and not by sight, to trust him when it's difficult? He puts us through trials that are designed for our good. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 is a well-known example. Peter writes this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's why he does it. Parents who are trying to teach their child to walk don't let go of his little hands just to watch him fall, right? They let go so that he could learn to walk on his own. His chubby little legs need to be strengthened, and he needs to learn how to keep his balance. And so at times, they let go, and they watch him fall, and he's going to fall a lot. But unless his parents are willing to carry him for the rest of his life, he has to go through the trial of learning how to walk. And so do you, and so do I, in walking with the Lord. But here's a wonderful promise from the Lord about trials and temptations. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. may feel like it, but that's his promise. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Don't give up until God rescues you. So never blame God. If you do, you're just playing wrong for the two reasons that James says. The other problem with blaming God is that you need him. He is the source of everything that you and I need in order to overcome these trials and these temptations. But if you're blaming God, you're not going to him for the strength, for the patience, for the grace to overcome these things. And the other problem with blaming God is because it's not his fault, you and I aren't addressing the real problem. And the real problem is our third point. The third key to overcoming trials is to purify your desires. Verses 14 and 15 say this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's a very sober reminder. So where does temptation come from if it doesn't come from God and the trials that he brings to us? It comes from us. It comes from the evil desires within us. 
We are the problem. Our evil desires are the problem, not God. In fact, our desire to blame God in situations like that is just proof of the problem. The illustration here is a, is a fishing one, right? The bait entices the fish, and once it bites, it is dragged away. That is what temptation does, right? It entices us with a superficial beauty. And when we take the bait, we feel the sting of this sharp hook, just like we did the previous time. I think this is a very helpful illustration. I mean, I don't know if you about you, but I oftentimes, and I don't like to fish, but when I've thought about fishing, as I so often do, I thought to myself, fish are pretty stupid, right? Like, I mean, if they're swimming and all of a sudden they see a worm swimming on a string, wouldn't they say, well, that's unusual, you know? And all of a sudden their friend Finn goes over to take a look at it. Get it, Finn? And they're like, oh, Finn's going Finn's gonna to get the, uh, the what? The worm. I already forgot. Finn's going to get the worm. He's looking at it. All of a sudden, Finn bites on the worm, and then poof, where'd he go? <laughs> He's gone fast, but they don't seem to learn, right? Because the next worm that gets lowered, somebody takes it. That's the problem. You and I, we circle around temptation, right? We see it. We're intrigued by it. We wonder if maybe there's no hook. It's just bait this time. It's just this delicious little piece of food. It's going to work out just fine. And yet we continue to be fooled by the same temptation over and over again. The problem is not God. James says the problem is our desires that wage war in our soul. And they conflict with God's holy desires. And if that's the case, then the solution is the adoption and the strengthening of new desires, of God-honoring desires in our lives. Because when you and I choose the incomparable blessings of walking with God, this crown of life, this intimacy with God, when we choose that over all of the temptations that we might face to give in to trials, then we win. We are choosing freedom over slavery. God has given us good things, and he has given us an appetite for those things. He is a good and gracious God. It comes up in our, uh, in our chapter later on. The problem is when we pursue what one author said is any human longing for what God has prohibited. So according to James, temptation itself isn't the sin. It is the opportunity to sin. Desire has to conceive. We have to welcome it in in order for it to become sin. Temptation is all around us. It is a part of life. Even Jesus was tempted. And some of you may feel so overwhelmed because you think, I can't get these, these thoughts that keep coming into my head. I must be a horrible Christian. Well, it's what you do with those thoughts. And the wonderful encouragement is, the more you obey the Lord, the more you trust him day by day, the stronger you become, the more mature you become. And those temptations do not have the same hold on you. And I wish I'd have known that when I was 20 years old, 30 years old. I wish I would have really grasped that. There are some things that I thought, things that I did. I'd go back right now and I'd say to a young married Bill, this is what you should never say to Carme. Bad idea all the time. You, you never win saying this. You never win thinking this. Do this instead. But sometimes we don't do that, right? It's, it's too easy to give in. 
What we long for sometimes is not what God wants us to have. Christian maturity, this I think is a very helpful quote. Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. So one commentator said. It's not the infrequency of temptation, but the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. So be encouraged. It may be exceedingly difficult for you right now. Continue to persevere, and it will get easier. Note that sin, though, is not the end of the line, right? Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Physical death eventually, though sometimes immediately, but ultimately spiritual death as well. It brings separation from God. And that's the real problem with sin, right? The wages of sin is death. Not the peace and the comfort and the ease and the pleasure that was promised by temptation, but spiritual death, separation from God. And that's what is at stake, James is saying. This is not a light thing. This is not something that we should treat casually. If we overcome temptation, if we remain standing firm in a trial, we are promised the crown of life. And at the end of this passage, it's contrasted with disobeying the Lord, with sinning, which ultimately brings forth death. You know, this is the gospel. Jesus came to die to set us free, to set us free from slavery to sin, giving us his Holy Spirit to empower us to overcome all the trials and the temptations that we face. No matter what you're going through right now and you think you can't handle it, there's no solution other than sin. If you are a child of God, you have the resources of God Almighty to overcome that temptation. The Holy Spirit living inside of you, you yield to him. You plead with him for his strength. And he'll give it to you. But you know what? If you don't know Jesus this morning, you're really on your own. You're on your own. You don't have the Holy Spirit. And, and you may not even have the desire or the insight to understand that you are enslaved to sin. But you know what the wonderful thing is? And Pastor Tim said it earlier. You can trust in Christ today. You can acknowledge your need, that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness. You can believe on the Lord and commit your life to him and ask him to forgive you and ask him to be the Lord of your life. And today you can begin that journey of forgiveness and freedom and joy that God has for his people. So let me encourage you by way of reminder. Accept responsibility for the sinful desires that you have and seek to delight yourself in the Lord for the new desires that he gives us. Second, don't blame God. Do not blame God for temptation. Instead, run to him. Run to him and ask him for everything you need to overcome it. Be honest with him. Tell him how difficult it is. Tell him how painful it is. Tell him how long it's been. He already knows. You can gripe before the Lord. He's heard it all before. You know what he wants? He wants you to be honest with him. He wants your heart. He's big enough to take it. And so go to him. Don't blame him. And then finally, keep your eyes on the prize. Don't give up. God will rescue you. God will provide a way of escape. Do not give in to temptation. A deeper and more intimate relationship with the Lord is waiting for you. And it is worth it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take your word through the ministry of your spirit. Apply it deeply in our hearts. Father, many of us, like, like me from years ago, we've heard this before. We would even say that we believe it. But we have not internalized it to the core of our being. It's not in our bones yet. And so, Father, I pray that it would be. 
I pray that you would do whatever it takes in our hearts and in our minds that we would see in the crown of life this relationship with you something greater, more precious, more valuable than any temptation that we could face and that we would persevere. We would never give up. For your glory and our good we pray in Jesus' name, amen.